Welcome to another session of The Intellectuals. We're very blessed and honored to have Professor Jason Hill return to our, our platform to follow up on an important discussion of what's happening in America. But first, I want to thank Todd Wood and CD Media for graciously hosting this platform and our producers for this episode, Captain Brent Ramsey and Miss Jenny Gallagher. I am your host. I'm Ron Scott. I am the president for Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. Our guest today, uh, Professor Jason D. Hill, is a professor of philosophy and the author of five books. These include What Do White Americans Owe Black People, Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. And we've had the benefit of two sessions where we were able to discuss the, uh, the, the treasure chest between the, the front and the last pages of that book. Today, we're going to focus on another best-selling uh, book with the title, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. Professor Hill holds a PhD in philosophy and has been a professional writer and book author for over 30 years. He is a specialist in ethics, political philosophy, moral psychology, and American politics and foreign policy. He has been published in major magazines, including The Federalist, The American Mind, The American Thinker, Commentary Magazine, Spiked Magazine, and Salon. He is also a contributor to the, to the Hill. Professor Hill came to this country at the age of 20 from Jamaica and tells us that he has thrived beyond his wildest dreams. Welcome back, Professor Hill. Thank you. Feels like coming home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I can't believe a person you are. You look a lot younger than you are, but you've got decades of wisdom uh, out there in the in the public domain in your books, in your magazine articles. And I can't tell you what an honor it is to be able to interview you for a third time here on, on the intellectuals. So I want to transition from your the book that we've been talking about to another one with the title, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. In this book, you recount your experience in coming to America, your education and your experience in academia. Your life and experience present compelling evidence that America is open to all and that the American dream is alive and well. Why has your experience, which is graphic evidence of the lack of racism, not resonated and been celebrated in academic circles? Well, Ron, I must say that, you know, in, in, in the academic circles, which let's just say this is called in the academic left, because um, that's who they are. There is a managerial class of people who have expropriated the agency of black folks and they expect a victim narrative. These are people who have predicated their entire identities on the relief of the sufferings of black people. And when you are part of a managerial class whose purpose in life, whose meaning in life rests on relieving suffering, in some sense, you need to see other people suffer 
for continued meaning and existence to hold sway in your life. If I say to you, I'm not a victim, I've never been a victim, I have no intentions of being a victim, then in some sense, I've annihilated your purpose and your meaning in life. And that's what these academic leftists are like. That's what they actually do. And so it didn't resonate with them because I didn't come here with a victim story. I came here with the blessings and the moral support of my family, but I had to put myself through school. I came here with $120 in my pocket and I worked up to four jobs while going to school full-time and working full-time and then graduating magna cum laude. Now, the academic left doesn't want to hear that story. What they want to hear is that, and I lived in Atlanta and I lived actually in Klan country, Ku Klux Klan country, because it was just very cheap to live there. And nobody harassed me, I was not ill-treated and uh, actually befriended some of these people. That's something that they don't want to hear. They want to hear that you were, you know, somebody with their confederate flag ran you over and tried to poke you with it and i look i'm just, I'm just i don't configure my identity in such a way that i'm going to be a victim if i'm a situational if i'm a victim in a situational situation where i'm like i have experienced racial prejudice in this country look i deal with it head on i i i, I confront the person who's 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 bothering me i would like to say or annoying me I dress them head on and then I move on. So I don't take being a situational victim as constitutive of donning, uh, uh, of creating an identity of being a permanent victim. So that's why um, they, they, they need to feel spe special. They need to feel that their purpose in life comes from fulfilling their rescue fantasies. And I did never, I never presented myself as someone who needed to be rescued from anything. If anything, I just presented myself as leave me alone, do not place any obstructions in my path on behalf of my efforts to further my life. Just leave me alone. Right. But most of the racism that I've experienced in this country, I must say, and that I continue to experience, even in my own university, I have a lawsuit against my university right now. It's come from the academic left. Well, in your the book we've been covering in, in other episodes, you had mentioned how you were called out by one of the leaders at your university. So you've been attacked and even shunned uh, by the establishment. So, so what what happened in that particular case? Why why were you called out? Oh, I I wrote an article in two thousand nineteen, in two thousand I think it was nineteen. Yes, in the Federalist, in which I defended. Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Netanyahu's right to annex, I don't know if you can annex your own land, but to annex Judea and Samaria, what's called the West Bank. And I question the extent to which the Palestinians, those Palestinians who vote terrorist organizations into power, like the PA, which is a terrorist organization, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas, which is most certainly a terrorist organization, that they should have a right to vote, that they shouldn't have the right to vote terrorist organizations into power. And all hell broke loose on the university. And I was illegally in violation of my contract and the handbook, in terms of the handbook, censured by faculty council. I was the only professor in the history of the university that had ever been censured. I was called a war criminal, a genocidal racist, an Arab hater. Um, there was a boycott led by faculty to to, to to boycott my classes where I was teaching only 
I had only four students between two classes, um, subjected to a very hostile work environment where very few of my colleagues, only two of my colleagues would probably speak to me. And, um, and so the suit that I'm pursuing now is one that's um, a hostile work environment and harassment. And the students, really the terrorist organization called the Palestinian Students for Justice took over a building or a couple of buildings and uh, called for my resignation, called that I be submitted to a racial sensitivity workshop and I refused steadfastly to, to, to adhere to any of their demands and distributed thousands and thousands of leaflets calling for, you know, down with Professor Hill. I received death threats and, and that sort of, those sorts of things. But uh, I think they messed with the wrong sort of person because um, I'm a tough cookie and I'm not one to be bullied or silenced. Um, I'm really quite steadfast in my commitments and they really picked on the wrong person. I'm going to fight them to the end. And, um, and that's a sordid story. Yeah. Oh. Well, I'm so sorry you've had to endure that. But as you were describing that, it, it reminded me of the days of Nazi Germany. Uh, Martin Heidegger, I know you know who that man is, which, uh, by the way, had a relationship with Hannah Arendt, one of my favorite authors, who's written The Origins of Totalitarianism. And she covered the Eichmann trial in Israel when they brought him back from Argentina. Yes. Uh, but some of the material I've read, there was similar university leadership sentiment at the time in terms of how they treated uh, professors and even students mm -hmm. uh, as totalitarianism in the form of fascism in West Germany or Germany was emerging at the time. And so when I hear your experience, it just makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up when I've read similar experiences uh, during the 20th century. Uh, do you think it's reached that level of danger at our university campuses? I think we are beyond probably the level of recuperation in most of our universities. I think our universities have ceased to become learning institutions. I think they have become bastions of indoctrination centers. I think they have become um, places where students are brainwashed into radical left-wing Marxist ideologies. I think the professoriate hate America. They hate capitalism. They hate America for being a good country, basically. And then when all is said and done, America is not perfect, but it's still, when you look out at the panoply of countries and the phalanx of leaders in the world, America is still a good country and they hate this country. And what we have is a bunch of students who have told me in my own classroom that their goal is to destroy this country and to go into the workplace and to rebrand corporations into becoming um, different types of corporations. They want to stamp, use their agency as an insignia to stamp and rebrand this country into something quite different, to change the political DNA of this country. So I I think universities are in a terrible state. We see more and more professors resigning from Ivy Leagues and 
and not Ivy League universities because of the woke supremacists and the cancer cultures and now the proliferation of trans ideology, which is a very, very dangerous trend. Um, I think trans authentic, real trans persons, that is people who suffer from gender dysphoria, which used to be a very, very small minority of people like 0.6% of the population, should be treated with dignity and sympathy and respect. But trans ideology, which is something completely different, is quite nefarious and uh, is running amok in our universities where if you misgender people, you can be fired from your job. Um, so I, yeah, I think our universities are uh, the chickens, the, the, the chickens from the 1960s who ran the black studies programs and the women's studies and the queer studies and the post-colonial studies and the Chicano studies, all these programs that were not real disciplines but were advocacy and revolutionary studies programs that declared war on Western civilizations. When we heard that Jesse Jackson in 1980 saying, ho, 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 Western Civ has got to go. There was still hope, but now the chickens have come home to roost. And what we're seeing now is total nihilism uh, running amok in our universities. Well, and, and the, the frightening aspect of this for me, Professor, is I see a lot of delusion among my counterparts who have served in the military for decades, uh, which is a reason why Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services exists. We formed because of our being alerted to what you're describing at the United States Air Force Academy. Yes. And it, it seemed pretty harmless on the surface until you, you look closer and you find out that uh, there's an undercurrent here in America that is very powerful, extremely powerful. It's building momentum each day. And most Americans who are comfortable and enjoying the perks of working hard and now they can travel and enjoy the comforts of prosperity have little idea of what's happening in America. So with that, you recently returned from your birthplace in Jamaica. So this year in 2022, how do you, how do Jamaicans view the United States and our current embrace of wokeness and consuming emphasis on racism, CRT, and our embrace of the Black Lives Matter movement? That's a very interesting question because when I was growing up, America was a place that was worshipped, with that was was held in awe and 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 esteemed. And I must say that Jamaicans know I've been back every year and sometimes twice a year in the past because my mother has gone back to retire there to be with her friends and and so on. See America as as almost like a joke it has become quite weak and. Um, unable to stand for any kind of sustained values, um, that it has morphed into a valueless um, country that is unable to withstand the forces that are inimical to its foundations. And I was shocked to the extent to which very few Jamaicans aspire now to really not very few, but not as many aspire to migrate to America as had been the case in the past. 
uh, most of them are, and this might be a good thing, are opting to stay in Jamaica and make the country a better place. But um, they see, they, I want to emphasize that they do see America as, as becoming weaker and in a declinist um, register. Uh, and this is not the way that they'd seen America even up to 10 years ago. Um, they also, Jamaica is quite a macho country. <laughs> And um, and this might fit in with something that to do with with with, with stars in the military. And I and I'm writing a, my next book is precisely on this. I'm writing a book called Man Haters: um, The Left's Vicious Campaign Against Men and Boys. And I do see in the university and in our culture in general a concerted effort to destroy masculinity, to destroy the agency of men and boys. And this is something that I think is having a dire effect in the military. I mean, um, whether you're male or female, there are certain ethical traits, and I defend this in the book, that mask ethical, what I call ethical masculinity, used to be an ethos that dominates the military, that dominated the military. Mm -hmm. And mass, it's not that just there's something called toxic masculinity, there is something called masculinity that by definition is toxic that our culture is coming to accept. And Jamaicans are very quick to pick upon this. Uh, and they think this is quite laughable, that the notion of toxic masculinity, they have no way of making sense of it because it's a very masculinist society, but good or bad, where you know traditional gender roles are still the norm. Um, so that's something that they have noticed. Well, it, it's ironic that you mentioned the toxic masculinity. We have been alerted to the notion that at West Point, I mean, talk about an institution that is designed to produ produce warriors to defend our nation. They've been introduced into the dangers of toxic masculinity at West Point, yes. which is pretty disconcerting to me. Uh, but now freedom of speech, you know, as we talk about some of our concerns about what's happening in America, Freedom of speech is such an important antidote to it, but it's under attack in America, in academia, in the press, social media, and politics. What is your assessment of this phenomenon, and how do we recover from this type of attack on core American values? Well, it's quite strange that, you know, in the 1960s, uh, the, the vanguards of freedom of speech used to be the left, and it was the conservatives who would normally have sort of like speech codes and and um and, and or not anti-free speech but would more be more sort of vigilant about the use of language and so on and now today it's the left that is the enemy of free speech and the conservatives who are trying to protect free speech and it's, it's the conservative viewpoints in universities that are being shut down um I think what's happening is that this is consistent with the view that the left is trying to rebrand this country, change the political DNA of this country into something quite socialistic. And that if you have a diversity of viewpoints, if you have rejoinders, and if you have contestations, um, you disrupt the agenda of these left-wing radicals who want to remake the country into something completely different. I think we should take Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez quite seriously when she says that under her watch, America would become 
a democratic socialist country. Um, I think when Obama said that, and I will admit I voted for him the first time, I did not vote for him the second time. I couldn't bring myself to do it because I was very disappointed in him. But like a lot of people, I was very excited about his, 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 his the promise that he promised to deliver. But when he said, we're going to change America, um, he should be taken quite seriously that the progressive logical outcome of that promise was to rebrand America into being a socialist country. So the shutdown of free speech is really meant to silence what John Stuart Mill argued for, which was intellectual diverse viewpoints, because we're not infallible creatures, we're fallible creatures, and we need a diversity and a multiplicity of viewpoints. And so the attack on free speech really is a move on the part of the left to have a coercive monopoly on what they think is the truth. They don't even think it's, it's a truth. They think it's what will gain them power. And it's a coercive exercise on a monopoly of power in order to silence contestations, in order to silence rejoinders, counterfactuals, so that you have a codified canonized set of principles that get passed off as truths and if you like such as men can have babies right and when i challenged that viewpoint in my classroom i was reported i was i was reprimanded right no you can't fudge a science everybody knows that sex is determined by chromosomal markers um but again going back to our conversation we had in our last session who cares about the facts? It's a narrative that counts, right? So it 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 it's not it's not it's, it's all about power and it's all about an agenda to reframe this country, to rebrand this country rather into something radically different, and to make this country into a different kind of country. And the way that you have to do that, it's not by controlling speech; it's by controlling the mind. It's a nationalization of the human mind through controlling thoughts because speech is just simply the utterance of what one is thinking the codification of thought made tangible through an oral means so it's really nationalizing the mind it's subjecting the mind to these coercive principles and making into psychotics and into wackos those who dare to utter what is really the truth so if you say today no, a man can't be a woman. A man can't have a baby. You're seen as not just being politically insensitive. You're actually seen as being crazy because everybody knows that men can have babies. Well, what, what's uh, interesting, and I, I, I believe I mentioned this book in one of our previous sessions, Joseph Schumpeter, who was a Nobel Prize winning economist, has written a book. Uh, back in the 1950s about socialism and democracy and capitalism. And in the early pages of that book, he talks about Marxism is a religion to the people that embrace it. And he goes on to talk about the tenets. And if you don't subscribe to it, not only are you wrong, you're considered immoral and should be condemned and punished for it. That's the extent of the ideology and the framing of of their view of the world. Yes. 
Now, uh, a recent Washington Post article alleged that there is a sharp rise in the instances of violence related to right-wing extremists, including white supremacists. What is your view of this kind of reporting? I don't know if you're familiar with that article, uh, but and does the data support such a conclusion? Um, I'm familiar with the article. I'm not. Sh- I, <clears throat> I'm not sure if the data. I don't. I don't know if the data supports the 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 conclusion of the article. Um, let me say a couple of things about this. I think there is. Well, first of all, we didn't have white extremist groups going around burning down Minneapolis and burning down our cities and looting our cities after the the death of George Floyd. Right? It was Antifa and Black Lives Matter. But I want to say that there is a rise of extremism on both the left and the right in terms of hate groups that uh, as a, a, a great lover of this country and as a great patriot, I find problematic and I find disturbing. I think every American who loves this country should find extremism um, disturbing. I mean, I find it to their admission, the fact that the Proud Boys, which is a white supremacist group, were the first to, to, to breach the attack on our on our city in, on January 6th, on Washington DC, and, our, and, and, and to attack something that is, you know, our, our sacred institutions, um, quite, quite problematic. And um, that we, although the president did condemn these white nationalists and white supremacist groups in Charlottesville, when he gave his talk early in his presidency in which someone died. Now, let me say that, Ron, when I was coming of age in, um, in the in 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 Atlanta in my early twenties, uh, these white supremacist groups would um, would have would have sort of were in the background. They were treated as 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 stigmas as there was a stigma fixed to their their existence. And what bothers me on both sides is the extent to which the mainstreaming and the normalization of extremism on both sides. Um, is happening in our country. I find this I find this quite problematic. Um, so I, I I don't see evidence that there is um, there are white supremacists going around burning down mosques and 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 and, and uh, committing the degree of violence that I think the polls is attributing. But I will say that I find bothersome the extremism in hate uh, on both sides, whether it's Antifa, Black Lives Matter, or these, you know, whether they're Proud Boys or I can't remember the names of some of these other um, white Oath keepers and Oath keepers and the white yeah. extremist groups. That it's it's very, very worrisome to me that it's tribalism, it's a form of tribalism and collectivism. And, um, and we've Every American who loves this country should be speaking out against this form of tribalism and this this kind of hatred um, on 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 both on, on both parts. Um, that we need, to, in some sense, understand what is happening. I don't think either group loves this country in the way that you and I would love this country. Um, I think the motivations on both parts are very different, um, but I think the extremism itself is quite is quite worrisome. And for our viewers, uh, we're we're basing this interview on Professor Hill's book. We have overcome, 
an immigrant's letter to the American people. I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's a very compelling book. Uh, you are a member of the 1776 Unites. Uh, we have in interviewed several of your colleagues from 1776 to include Wilford Riley, Carol Swain, and Charles Love, uh, very powerful advocates for solving the, the concerns that we're talking about. Can you tell us a bit more about 1776 Unites and what do you hope to accomplish through this organization? Well, it emerged as a as a as a uh, a rejoinder really to the 1619 project, spearheaded by Nicole Hannah Jones, um, who attempted to frame talk about framing to frame the history of this country in a particular kind of way. And 1776 1776 unites really is not, in my view, so much an attempt to smash the 1619, 1619 project in terms of what it gets right about certain aspects of this country's history, but the attempt to which it functions as a highly reductionistic um, branding formula for explaining every single atrocity, every single um, disparity, every single um, affliction that uh, happens to blacks vis-a-vis -vis whites, that it's all reducible, whether we're talking about the consumption of sugar, whether we're talking about uh, hypertension in America among blacks, whether we're talking about obesity, uh, according to the 1619 Project, it's all traceable back to what they call racist capitalism. And so what we want to do at 1776 is, first of all, to show that there is more to the history of this country in terms of Blacks than their oppressive status. So I just finished writing up, um, for example, a study guide that's going to be used in, among, among, in about 300 universities. And in that study guide, we're, we're, I, I'm highlighting this, the, the book, Red, White, and black by which is edited by Bob Woodson. And in that book, among other things, you know, we we showcase the success stories of blacks from slavery up to the 21st century. People like uh, Biddy Mason, who was a, a slave and who escaped slavery and went on to become a millionaire, a real estate entrepreneur. People like Elijah McCoy, whose parents escaped slavery and became an engineer who invented uh, lubrication systems for steam engines. We talk about uh, the Black Wall Street that existed in Durham, South Carolina, Durham, South Carolina, that escaped all the problems of the depression. They never went through those, those entrepreneurs and the, and the banks and the insurance companies that they created somehow never went through or experienced the failures of the depression. We talk about how at one point in history, the marriage rates among blacks was higher than it was among whites, right? All of the stuff that's left out of the 1619 project, we show how blacks use their agency and their capabilities to overcome obstacles. And in spite of the fact in the face of virulent racism during Jim Crow era, they created very, very strong communities. They created very, very strong bonds among themselves and transcended the problems and the obstacles 
This is what we do at 1776. We just tell the other side of the story that's left out of the 1619 project so that Americans actually can understand that black people are, are heroes, that there are heroic stories that need to be told that have not been told. We talk about um, the, oh, I have this written down because I wanted to just mention it. The, um, um, there's a group of, of fighters who fought in World War II. I can't remember their names right now, but um, a, a, a group of patriotic. Oh, Tuskegee Airmen? No, these were, um, um, these were a group of black, they fought in World War I. Um, um, their names are eluding me right now, um, but they, they, were, they were so patriotic um, that they wanted to fight for their country. And they were ridiculed at first by, by whites who said that in the military said that these are just children. And they, 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 they wouldn't stop until they, they convinced their, their, white, their white compatriots that they were just as worthy as any white soldier fighting. And they went to France and fought in World War I. It's a heroic story that, that, that Americans need to know about. So this is what we do at 1776. We sort of, we, sh we showed the heroism of, of blacks in this country, who incidentally um, did not see themselves as victims. And there are many, many stories of black entrepreneurs, um, hoteliers, insurance brokers who were relegated to black only sections of cities um, because of the of the segregation laws that existed and made something remarkable of their lives um, who followed the sort of Booker T. Washington paradigm um, and pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. So that's what we really well, want to do. It's not so much to sort of demolish the 1619 project, but, but to show the other side of, of, of Black history. What I find remarkable about what you just described uh, Frederick Drug Douglass went through the same experience. Here he was, a, a former slave, brutalized by masters. And once he he was out there arguing for our Constitution, he firmly believed in it. And what, again, what strikes me as unusual in trying to convince many of my colleagues, former colleagues and peers, that our organizing principle was the Constitution. We swore to support and defend it. But yet, I think a lot of my peers forget what the Constitution meant. We weren't swearing allegiance to a president or a secretary of defense or to a general or an admiral. It was to the Constitution and the ideas that it codified. Uh, and so what, what I really admire about 1776 unites and your team is you're refreshing in the minds of people those ideas those principles that were worth fighting for that the blacks in the first world war i mean definitely experiencing racism uh harsh discrimination jim crow laws that sort of thing but they believe so wholeheartedly in america and what it stood for they wanted to fight for it and so talk about elevating their consciousness their passions to something much higher than the petty racial discrimination that that takes place um, is is very inspirational and that's the one thing we keep reminding 
our peers and colleagues, STARS is not here to censor anybody that has a contrary view. We just let people know we have a different view on things. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure it's told because it's different from what other people are advancing. Uh, but we don't mind explaining why it's dangerous and why it, it needs to be checked right. with another narrative, a, a different frame that is far more grounded in facts than just myth and, and fiction. So I, I really applaud uh, Professor Hill what, what your team with the 1776 is doing. Now, having said that, what are effective techniques to stop the advance of these divisive ideologies? What can stars do? Well, I think you can first try to convince the federal government. I'm not sure that it would happen <clears throat> under this administration, but to convince the federal government that, look, the universities are the transmission belt and the conveyors of, of cultural ideas. They all start in the universities and then they sort of trickle down into the general culture. The rate at which it's, trans, it's being transmitted is, a, is, 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 is at a fast rate. Is first to, to, stop, is to stop funding the universities. Um, there's no reason why taxpayers should be funding their own destroyers. There's no reason why businessmen and corporate businessmen and women and corporate leaders and the average American whose taxes are being appropriated and expropriated to fund these haters of America should continue. And the other thing too is that alumni donors should be made aware through a campaign effort to fix conditions, conditionals to the monies, the, 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 the dollars that they donate to these universities. You see what alumni donors have done and corporations in general and donors in general in good faith have just handed over hundreds and millions of dollars to universities and thought that the universities will responsibly use them. I think they should fix strict conditionals that if I'm giving $100,000 this corporation um, to a university that I want the money allocated in certain departments, like a military studies department or to fund certain conservative programs that are underfunded or however the corporation or the heads of corporations want to see it funded. But, you know, Ron, we're in a terrible state. When you have something like a company like JP Morgan giving $100 million to Black Lives Matter, uh, it boggles the mind. I mean, we have to get into a deeper conversation of why this kind of moral and cultural bankruptcy is taking root. Um, so there, there is a sense in which I think that we live in a climate of great fear where there's a, a sense that there's an impending war that's coming, a civil, something bordering on a civil war that's coming. And so the people who are the groups that are most feared are being placated. And I think the placation has to stop in terms of like the universities and the ideas of these, of these radicals and the universities and they're bullies and one has to stand up to bullies. I think students, who disrupt speeches ought to be expelled from universities. And I think that it is going to take an enormous amount of courage 
on the parts of parents to invest more in their children's education. This is something as a professor of 25 years, I was not in favor of. I thought you hand your child over to whether it's K through 12 or the university. And in good faith, you should let the institution do its job of continued socialization, no more. I said, poof to that idea. Parents have got to get a little bit much, much more involved and see the kind of malarkey that is taking place in terms of what their children are being taught and to raise ruckus and to demand that syllabi and content be completely revised. Uh, I think what STARS can do is 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 what is joined forces with, with other organizations and demand of course that the teachers union just be completely abolished i think the teachers unions are dangerous i think they do not have the welfare of children in uh their in their um and i'm not just going to demonize everyone who's in the teachers union but i think the teachers unions are in cahoots with a lot of what children are being taught in k through 12 the kind of radical, Marxist, left-wing, dangerous ideologies that are being propagated and promulgated and that I see in the classroom when I get them as freshmen now, they come, you know, ready-made to rebrand the very universities in which they're supposed to be receiving their education where I'm auditioning for my students almost and I'm subjected to what they call teachable moments because I'm a dinosaur yeah. and I don't know anything about the real world. So it's all about activism and advocacy and learning has gone off the way. So I think a revolution among this, this, the, I don't know if it's a silent minority or the silent majority, but more people have got to just come out, get out and speak out and unite with parents. I have found in this book tour that I'm on going across the country, more parents are shocked and horrified and are getting more involved in their children's lives. And I think, Ron, this is what it's going to take. You know, when, when your child comes home and says to you, don't gender me because I'm not being gendered at school. Or if a child, a friend of mine, uh, I think Charles Love was telling me about uh, one of his uh, son's friends who said, you know, his teacher told him that, you're black, so you're going to be debilitated and weakened for the rest of your life by a patriarchal system that hates you. That's child abuse. How can you tell a, how can you tell a six-year-old child that? So when parents begin to feel the effects of the teachings of these radical Marxist left-wing propagators, uh, I think things might start to change. I think things might start to change. So parents are a very powerful force here. A very, a very underused and a very powerful force. But, but again, Ron, you know, I, I'm perplexed because a lot of these parents are just falling into line with also what is being taught. They're, they're becoming as progressive in the bad sense of progressive. And becoming as brainwashed as their children are, they're not necessarily in the majority, but they're also they're also part of this cult of nihilism that the schools are 
are promoting. And that worries me also. I mean, I think our country is just in a lot of trouble. Um, so I think it's going to take a, a radically new type of leadership in this country, a set of political leaders, um, intellectual leaders who are armed with fundamental philosophical principles that go back to the core of this country's identity, the bedrock foundational principles of this country's identity and to promote them and to promote them unapologetically. Um, the other thing I wanna say is that America is still, someone asked me in an interview this week that I still think America was an exceptional country. And I said, you know, I will go to my grave still believing that because America is not the country that I fell in love with 37 years ago, but it is still an exceptional country when one looks out at the, um, the vast panoply of other countries. And we still have got to not be apologists for American exceptionalism. And we've got to somehow uh, incorporate, this is what 1776 is doing, you know, I'm, I'm writing a study guide that is going to be disseminated among 300 universities uh, that promotes, among other things, the value, the sacredness of the constitution. Um, we've got to promote in our school something like rational patriotism, mm. love of country, mm -hmm. you know, to yeah. get that, to get that be part of the curriculum of K through 12, instead of hatred of America, which is what is being implicitly or sometimes explicitly taught a rational patriotism, a rational love of country by explaining mm -hmm. what the, I've written an essay in my, in my book, the moral meaning of America. What is the moral meaning of America? explaining that to children so that they can experience a rational love, a cerebral rational love for this country. Oh, which which is based more in fact than fictional frames. That's right. So what, what a powerful closing, Professor Hill. I was going to ask if you were optimistic or pessimistic, but you've already told me that you are optimistic, concerned, but optimistic. And so yes. I, I cannot thank you enough for taking so much time with us uh, at the intellectuals to, to share your concerns and your insights on things that we can do to uh, elevate ourselves uh, beyond the situation that we face. Uh, so if, if our listeners want to learn more about Jason Hill, uh, how can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jason D at Jason D Hill six and on Facebook at that at Dr. Jason D Hill. Also I have a website that, um, be patient with me. It needs updating, but it has a lot of my interviews and articles. It's uh, jasondamianhill.com. My middle name is D-A-M-I-N, jasondamianhill.com. So Twitter, um, Facebook, and of course, I'd love if my listeners bought my books on Amazon, where it's they're very, very discounted. Um, um, we have overcome an immigrant letter to the American people is available there as are some of my other, all of my other books. So five, five books, <laughs> my five books. Right. Well, Professor Hill, thank you again for uh, honoring us with these interviews. And uh, I know we'll be working together outside of the, this interview platform uh, because you are a tremendous asset and you have an important voice. And I want to make sure that, 
the levers that can help us move things in the right direction are know about you and that you can uh, enlighten them on things that we can be doing. So thank you again, Professor Hill. Thank you so much, Ron. It was my, my deepest pleasure to be here and to be of service.